Good morning, church. I need you to open your Bibles to two different books, first and last book of, of your Bibles. I need you to open to Genesis chapter 2 and then have Revelation chapter 21 uh, ready to go in just a few moments. If you're visiting Christ Church, my name is Mark and I'm one of the ministers here on staff. And we're glad that you've joined us here uh, on this Easter Sunday morning uh, to celebrate Jesus and who he is. Promises. Easter is all about promises. Promises kept and promises from God. Uh, promises used to mean a lot to me, and uh, I remember several in my life that were kept. I remember being told that if I've got a certain number of correct grades on my grade card, I could get a new bike. I remember a promise that we would go on a vacation to Disneyland to see my aunt and uncle in California. Uh, I remember a lot of promises. I remember promises that were positive, like if you boys behave today, you'll get ice cream. And then I remember promises that sounded more like this. If you ever do that again, you won't have it tomorrow. I remember those promises as well. <clears throat> you see, we often mistake rewards as being positive, but not all rewards are positive. Some rewards are earned and they're negative. But the promises that we think about that matter, the ones that changed our lives, are always predicated on who made the promise. I learned something about my dad at a very young age. I grew up about 90 miles from uh, Chicago, Illinois, and South Bend, Indiana, and I remember many times saying to my dad, can we go see a Cubs game? And if my dad said, we'll see, that meant what? No, no. He just didn't, couldn't tell me no, but he'd say, we'll see, which meant we either didn't have money or he didn't have vacation. But when my dad said, yeah, we'll go to a game, I would instantly go to the newspaper and pull up the schedule or to the sporting news and find the entire summer schedule for the Cubs and highlight two or three games against good opponents that would love to go and my dad would help us pick those. I remember those kind of promises. I need you to know on Easter Sunday morning that the resurrection day is all about a promise kept from someone who can be trusted. And it's the message that lingers on and on and on. I want to say a very bold statement this morning. It's Easter Sunday and today we celebrate the most important thing that happened to every human being ever. It's a pretty big statement, yes. Is it religious self-justification? What else is a preacher going to say on the day most people go to church? But this is. What this day honors and remembers is the most important thing that impacted every single person who has ever lived, and it will impact every person who lives beyond us. But instead of trying to go theologically and describe every component of it, which time doesn't allow, what I'm really hoping to accomplish today is it's more important that we appreciate it. Appreciate it on its essence. So to be able to do that, I need to make another big, bold statement this morning to capture your attention because I think it's misunderstood in our lives and in most of culture. The Bible is not a set of stories that show you and I how to get to God. The Bible is a single story about how God came from heaven to restore us. I need you to, to ponder this with me. If you're going, I don't know if I agree, perfect, I have your attention. If you're saying, I absolutely agree, keep paying attention. Many of us think that the Bible are little anecdotal stories and some laws and rules, and if we obey them, we will get to God. But I'm here to tell you, the Bible is a story about how we couldn't get to God, so God came to us. From its beginning to its conclusion, its entirety, I'm told that great literature has one of seven themes to it. And you can, you can look these up if you want to, but they have things like tragedy and brokenness, romance, rebellion, a quest for something sacred. 
Any great piece of literature combines these plot lines in their story. I need you to know that the Bible is not a story written by a man to impress us. It is a historical, accurate, living, breathing document about a God who's after us. And he's not after us to smoke us. He's after us to love us, to restore us, to mend what's been broken. The Bible is really a simple story. It begins in Genesis, which tells us what we did wrong. And I want to pause here for a moment. If you blame Adam and Eve for what's happening in your life, you haven't met you yet. The story of Adam and Eve is all of our stories. I do believe there was an Adam and an Eve. But I also believe if they didn't, I would have. So their story is my story. It begins in Genesis. And then in the middle of the story, in the Gospels, the stories of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, when they tell about Jesus, it shows us not only what we did wrong, but what God did to fix it. And then you go to the end of the book in the Revelation of John, and you'll find in that Revelation, God reveals to us what he has been doing from day one to fix our condition. It's a love story that turned ultimately tragic. And for some will remain tragic, and for others will remain beautiful, a story of redemption. And so, in a, and I hope in kind of a quirky, unique way today, I can retain your attention by telling you about three gardens found in the Bible, and three particular trees in those gardens, and what those trees can mean to us for the rest of our lives. Let's begin with the Garden of Challenge. It's the first garden you'll find in the Bible, and in it is a tree of trust. There's a particular tree in this garden that challenged the people within the garden to respond. In fact, many of you know the garden as the Garden of Eden, and the word Eden actually means a garden of pleasure or a garden of living. It's a place where God dwelt with man that he created for us. I need you to understand the Garden of Eden was perfection. There was nothing wrong in it. There was nothing lacking. There was no pain. In fact, the Bible gives a clear statement. It was a place without shame. People could be who they were with God with no worry about what others thought or how they had failed. Genesis chapter 2, verse 9. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground. In the middle of the garden were the trees of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Two trees. One in particular, though, is is noted here. In verses 16 and 17, And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. This is one of those, the moments in the story that we need to understand and accept. You, we don't have to like it, because God didn't ask us if we wanted this to be. It's true. God has the freedom to share with us anything that's his or to keep from us anything that's his. And that's just the way it is. And in the garden, God created all of this for mankind. And in a challenge of trust, he planted one particular tree. And he said, I'm telling you that I'm asking you not to eat of that tree. It will not be good for you. And it is the challenge that all of us face every day of our lives. Uh, A few years back, I believe about five or six years ago, a man named George Bean in California stopped at a Burger King to get himself a sandwich. He was hungry on the way to a meeting, so he just grabbed one sandwich, and the girl told him that the bill was $4.33. He pulled around to the window. The young lady wasn't as attentive as she needed to be. He wasn't paying attention. He handed in his debit card. She typed in the bill twice. So for his Whopper, he was charged $4,334.33, which came immediately out of his checking account which flipped him upside down, and he had, he had withdrawn too much money that he didn't have. 
And he never checked the receipt. He had to fight desperately to get the money back, even though the restaurant tried to help. And this article that appeared in a California paper, Palmdale, California, the newspaper billed the article with this title, The Most Expensive Snack in History. But i got to be a preacher, so I have to ruin that. It wasn't the most expensive snack in history. That happened in the Garden of Eden. When man looked at God, who asked them to trust him, and he said, no, I would rather do it my way. You see, here's what we need to understand. Man's happiness does not consist when we are like God. If you think your happiest moment is when you're in charge of everything like God is, and you have complete say over everything like God is, you've misunderstood. The happiest moment for any of us is when we're with God, not when we're like God. Because the truth is, no matter how much autonomy you pretend to have and independence you claim, you'll never be like God. Because you are created and no match for the creator. And so in that moment, when Adam and Eve ate the most expensive snack in history, everything changed. They decided to treat a loving relationship with God as something inconsequential. And they eventually found out it was the most consequential thing they would ever possess. Adam chose... In a perfect environment where he had everything he needed, he decided to try to take the one thing he didn't need, independence from God, and then he lost everything he ever would need. You see, in Romans chapter 5, Paul would explain this thousands of years later. Paul would explain this to Christians. Adam sinned, and that sin brought death into the world. Now everyone has sinned, and so everyone must die. That's why I suggest to you that the story of the resurrection impacts every single person who's ever lived because every one of us comes to that moment where we face the first tree and we decide when God says, don't do that, don't act like that, don't do these things, we either claim our independence from God by doing exactly what we want to do or we claim our dependence on God and we honor him with obedience. That tree is significant. The result of their choice is found in Genesis 3:22. Then the Lord said, "These people now know the difference between right and wrong just as we do. But they must not be allowed to eat fruit from the tree that lets them live forever." So the Lord God sent them out of the garden of Eden where they have would have to, had to work from the ground from which the man had been made. Then God put winged creatures at the entrance of the garden and a flaming flashing sword to guard the way to the life-giving tree. Now for, for many times growing up, I have to be honest with you, and I, and I was very fortunate to have been raised in the church. I don't believe because I was raised in the church. I believe because Jesus is real, and the church helped me discover that. And in the moment, so I often thought that God was maybe, if I can use a, a weird term, a little bit petulant here. They ate of the tree, and God said, fine, I'm taking my ball. You can't play in my game. Get out of my playground. So he locked them out of the garden. But I realized as I've become older and I understand the nature of God, that God did not punish them by sending them out of the garden, although it was a punishment. God protected them by locking the gates to the garden because there was one tree remaining. It was a tree of life. And if they ate of the fruit of that tree, they would have sealed themselves for eternity. And in their independence from God, they would have been sealed. And to be independent from God is to be lost, or the Bible says unsaved or a sinner. And then it says that God put an angel, maybe many angels, in front of the gate with a flaming sword. In other words, nobody's getting back in until God reopens the garden. That's the first tree. That's the first moment. That's the first truth. And I realized something. On the moment, I want you to understand this about God. 
on the moment that we most declare our independence from God, God's love pursues us the most. The moment that Adam and Eve pulled the fruit from the tree and they each took their bite, it was at that moment that God made a promise. His promise was, I can overcome what you just did if you trust me. When we act the most independent, God's love becomes the most prominent. And it's a beautiful scene in that garden. Well, a generation or two passes and the the world is pursuing independence from God and not dependence from God. And so God is about to give them the fruit, if you will, pun intended, of their choices. And he says, I have promised you from the beginning, if you abide with me and live with me, I will bless you. But if you don't, I will not bless you. And the lack of my blessing will devastate your life and bring death upon you. So he calls a man named Noah, and he says, I'm about to wash the earth clean. And those who, if you build a boat, those who get in the boat will be saved. Now listen to the other side of the promise. And those who do not get in the boat will die, and they get to choose. So tell them I told them to do this, and how they respond to that first tree. Dependence or independence will save or not save them. And we know how that story turned out. God kept his promise. And then we go down a couple of uh, generations later, and there's a man named Abraham, and God says, I'm going to start a new kingdom, and I'm going to start it with people that trust me. We're going to go all the way back to the first tree. And if you eat of the fruit, you will be independent of me, and if you abide with me and protect yourself from the things I tell you to protect yourself, I can save you. He tells Abraham that, and he promises Abraham that if you trust me, I'm going to do things you can't do through you. And he does. He says, I'm going to give you a new name, and I'm going to give you a place to live, and I'm going to provide for you all of these blessings. And it's not about blood anymore. It's not about who's your child by by genetics. It's who's your child by faith. That's why Abraham's known as the father of faith. God says, if you trust me, I can bless you. If you don't trust me, there will be a reward, but it won't be a blessing. You see, for every one of us, it comes down to that first tree. And then God sent... Throughout the generations, God would send reminders out. He would send men and women that would go and they would speak the truth of God for audiences like this to hear, and they're called prophets. And as much as I do today, taking the words of the prophets and sharing them with us, this is what was going on. And there were thousands, maybe millions of prophets that spoke, and we have several of them recorded in the Bible so we would know what they were saying. And there was a man named Isaiah. And Isaiah prophesied in this beautiful language, this this great vision, Isaiah prophesied that there would be a man, just like Adam, who would take a tree and ruin himself, that God would send another man, just like Adam, who would face a tree and reverse it all. It takes us to the second garden, the garden of compassion. And in it is the tree of death. Isaiah would tell us the story of a man who would reverse all that Adam did for those who trusted God's promise. You see, back in Genesis 3, God made a promise to Adam and Eve, I'm going I'm to give you a chance to escape what you just did to yourself. And Isaiah tells us about him. Isaiah 53, he suffered and endured great pain for us, but we thought his suffering was punishment from God. He was wounded and crushed because of our sins. By taking our punishment, he made us completely well. And then John One of Jesus' friends who lived with him for a period of possibly as much as four years, John recorded these words. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb, which no one had ever been laid. You see, the second garden contained a dead tree. Let's, Let's contrast them. Adam came to a live tree 
and shows death. Jesus came to a dead tree and shows life. Do you see how God's reversing this whole story? How God is taking what we think is old news and turning it into brand new news? Where Adam went to a tree and he plucked from it death by his disobedience, Jesus went to a dead tree that had been turned into an instrument of death and he found life for all of us. That's why the scriptures say, by his wounds, you and I are healed. The Easter story impacts every person who will ever live because it is true and God is offering a promise that lasts forever. In that same letter to the churches in Rome, Paul wrote these words. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, Adam, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? If by Adam's choice at the first tree... Punishment of death came to all who sin, and all have sinned. Paul says, but let us rejoice that the gift that Jesus gave us reversed all the punishment that Adam's choice brought us. Peter, another one of Jesus' disciples, said it this way, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness, and by his wounds you have been healed. I was doing some research on this, and Dr. Timothy Keller, who preaches in New York, and he's a, just a fantastic mind and loves the Lord, in his teaching, he said something I'd never seen before, and I found it powerful. He said, in the first tree in the Garden of Eden, a thief was put out of paradise. Adam took what was not his from God. In the second garden, Jesus took a dead tree and took a thief and brought him into paradise. Do you remember what he said to the man who asked him? He said, today you'll be with me where? The reversal is in play. Where one thief was moved out of the garden, the act of Jesus on the cross brought thieves back into the garden to claim the promise that God would reverse what Adam and Eve brought upon themselves. Colossians chapter 1, verse 20, and God was pleased for him, for Jesus, to make peace by sacrificing his blood on the cross so that all beings in heaven and on earth would be brought back to God. Brought where? Remember, the ultimate goal in life is not to be like God. The ultimate goal in life is to be close to God, to be with him. And it was the blessing of the garden. And so all that Jesus did was so that you and I could go back to that tree and make a better choice, a choice to trust. And Jesus had to go through that I also noticed that both Adam and Eve died in their gardens. But there's one more garden in Scripture where death is not welcome. It's the garden of renewal. It's the garden of renewal, and in it is the unprotected tree of life. Do you remember in the first garden what God did when he closed the garden down so that man and woman would not eat of the tree of life and be sealed in their sin? Now you'll notice that in this third garden, there's a tree. It's the tree of life. It's the same tree of life that was found in the Garden of Eden. It's now been planted in a perfect place, and there's no longer an angel keeping us from it. We're invited to it. Why? Because of what Jesus did on the second tree. The tree of life is available to us again. That's why we worship him. That's where we find companionship again. In Revelation chapters 21 and 22, John paints a beautiful picture of the return of everything that has been lost And the book of Revelation will tell you, we've been studying it here as a church for the last two months, 
And you're welcome to, to hear those messages about how we're to live in light of this. But the revelation is God pulling back the curtain and saying, everything that was ruined in the first garden will be restored in the third garden. All because of the second garden. Three trees tell the story of the gospel. And in Revelation 21, John has a vision. Now, some will say it's a new Eden. It seems to me Jesus' favorite expression was the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. And most of us just call it heaven. But I grew up with the image of heaven from Bugs Bunny cartoons, that we'd float on clouds playing harps. And I'm not going to lie to you, boring. I don't want to live my whole life enjoying all the beautiful things God's given us in friendships to float around playing an instrument nobody plays anymore. And if you do, I repent. I'm so sorry. But anyway, you get the idea. There haven't been a lot of harp uh, concerts flowing through Joplin recently. Maybe there should be. But I don't see heaven as this ethereal experience where we float around without bodies. My Bible tells me more. My Bible tells me that God is going to bring back and he's going to reopen the garden. And all of the perfection that Adam and Eve experienced with God being there. Church, that's where we're headed. So to say to God, I want to be independent of you, denies you the opportunity to be the one place you're created to be with him. That first tree. That second tree. Let's talk about the third one. Revelation 21 too. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. Notice this, that we don't accidentally walk into the kingdom of heaven. We prepare ourselves by faith and obedience to be ready on that day he returns. And he's told us, be ready for me, awake, awake and let Christ shine on you. Revelation 21 says, on no day will its gates ever be shut. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful. I want to pause there for a moment. I read that verse and I go, I'm out. Because I've been shameful and deceitful. Maybe even today. I look at that and think, if you have to be perfect to get in, I can't get in. And then I want you to remember, Revelation 21 and 22 follows after the great judgment day where the blood of Christ and those who trust him have been saved. And there's no longer any record of our right. There's no longer any record of our wrong. It's all just saved by the gift of the man on the second tree. So when you hear nothing shameful or deceitful, here's the hope. There will be no trash in the kingdom of heaven. There will be no looking over your shoulder, wondering what your neighbor could do to you. There's going to be no malice or slander or hatred. We're going to live in a place where being with God will make all of us want to live to the best of our ability. I don't know about you. I'm tired of my own life. Nevertheless, all the pollution around me, I can't wait to be in a place where we don't have to worry about anything but how much God matters to us. You see, I forgot where I left off. Okay, but for those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life, you're going to be saved people. Revelation 22, verses 1 through 5. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. There will be no, or they will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. Did you catch the image here? God's city is going to be a massive garden. And the reason it's called a city is because a city, by definition, is a place of great population. 
That's why we live in small towns. But cities, New York, Chicago, L.A., San Diego, mass population. Do you, do you see the beauty of the image that John has? That what started in a garden with two people is going to be restored, but it is going to be chock full of people who have trusted God and been delivered. It's the biggest ark ever, and it will deliver us all from the flood. And there's going to be beauty, but it's not just a city, it's a garden. There's rivers flowing through it. There are trees standing there, and one beautiful tree that we have missed forever, the tree of life, and it is in the middle. And God has restored his complete promise that those who trust him will enter into the Garden of Eden again. No more lockdown. No more kept away, but invited back. Where once angels protected us against the tree of life, the ruler of all those angels now unlocks the gates and invites us in. You see, history began in a garden with one man and it ends in a city filled with the promise made to that one man. It's all about promises. Just review what we've learned today. To Adam, God says, I promise if you trust me, I will be with you, love you, and bless you. But if you do not trust me, you will be separated from me, and the love that I have for you will not be felt, and you will feel empty and lonely. And God keeps his promises. To Noah, he said, I promise to protect you and to provide for you. And if you obey me, then I will deliver you. If you don't obey me, you will not be delivered and you will die. To Abraham, he said, I promise a special relationship with you, a place for you, a new name for you, and a hope for you that's not about what you do, but what I do. And those who don't believe that promise will be isolated. There'll be no new name. Their names will not be written, or their, Christ's name will not be written on their forehead. They will not have a place, and they will not have a father. And we know that God keeps his promises. To Jesus, he said, Jesus... I'm going to send you down to be the man on the second tree. And to take a dead tree, an instrument of death, and turn it into life is why I'm going to send you. And those that believe in you, they will see you raised three days later from the tomb. And our last fear about facing death, that Jesus, you're going to tell them, if they trust you, death will happen, but it will be momentary and it will give birth to life. But to those who don't trust you, their death will be momentary but it will last forever. God keeps his promises. And so why do I believe? Because Jesus walked out of a tomb after three days. The joke was on Satan. He said, I've taken your last weapon. It now belongs to me, and I will turn death into life for those that trust my promises, and those who don't, they're yours. And when you read the book of Revelation, at the very beginning, Revelation chapter 2, Jesus says these words. These are not John's. These are the words of Jesus. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God, Eden. And then at the end of this same book, Jesus says, Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the most powerful moment that affects every single person who's ever lived. Some moments affect a couple Some moments affect a handful, and some moments affect generations. But every person who's ever lived has to face the first tree and face the man on the second tree to have any access to the third tree in the place you were created to be. Every human being, big statement, yes. True statement, absolutely. For every person to understand the third tree, you have to look at the man on the second tree.
Ezekiel, the Old Testament prophet, forecasts the power of the resurrection this way. This is what the sovereign Lord says. O my people, I am going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and bring you up from them. I will put my spirit in you and you will live. And I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken. And I have done it, declares the Lord. The resurrection is not a historical moment that we are glad happened. The resurrection is a historical moment that changes our every day. If Jesus is dead, so are every other human being. If Jesus came to life, then God's promises are absolutely certain and proven. That day, Jesus took the rightful place of Adam and Eve on the cross so that his blood and his victory over death could be ours. He promises to make something beautiful out of our mess. To Adam and Eve, he said, I will write what you've done wrong, but you have to trust me. And he's saying the same thing to us today. As Brad shared with me, we read the storybook, the Jesus storybook Bible for Christmas a couple of Christmases ago and just told the story in a very simple way and Brad reminded me of the last line in the story of Revelation in that Bible. Everything sad has become untrue. Church, isn't that good news today? That God's promise to fix what we wrecked is the story of the Bible. It's not how we get to God. It's how God came after us. And Peter said these words in 2 Peter 3. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. So I ask you a question today. You stand before the first tree to choose whether or not you trust him. But go to the second tree and see how much he's loved and pursued you. Because when we see the man on the second tree, the kingdom of heaven is open to us if we trust him as our promise keeper and our promise maker. Because I'll testify to those I know and to those I'm meeting here for the first time today. I believe God can take the wreck of my life and turn it into a song, a poem, or a story that fits in the scriptures. Because God's story is our story. It's a story of healing. And three trees tell me the story. So where are you in the story? Still fighting for independence in the first tree? Are you stuck at the second tree, knowing who he is but not understanding? We move beyond toward the third tree, life and hope and trust and peace. And if you want to know more about that, I'd encourage you today to, at the end of the service, to go to one of the tables that have a lamp lit on them around the room. You can go as we sing or, or wait till we're done, but if you go there, we'd like to, to show you who this Jesus is because he's worth paying attention to. Because today celebrates the moment that changes everything for everybody. Let's stand together.